religion because the rest from verse 13 on is very personal in nature and uh, so this is sort of the end of the theological section of Romans. So let's pick up at verse 7 in Romans chapter 15. So open your Bibles, turn your iPads, e-pads or whatever you have on and uh, follow me through. I'm reading from the NASB so uh, hopefully you can follow there. Okay, Romans chapter 15 and verse 7. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I trust God will bless us as we submit ourselves into his word. Rejoice with one another in God's redemptive plan is the head of this little message here today. And um, as I was thinking about that, this is the time of year, isn't it, that everyone loves to gather together and and uh, rejoice with family and friends, etc., especially around Christmas time. But, but generally speaking, people love hanging out together, right? I wonder, have you ever wondered why? You get the odd person who is a hermit. I reckon I could have been one once, but um, by grace the Lord saved me. And, um, but generally speaking, mankind loves hanging out with one another. They love uh, company. And um, so really God made us as social beings, and uh, we see diverse evidences of that all over the world. No matter what culture, creed, uh, or whatever background that we see, we, we see that God has made us social beings. But as we know, as we know, if we think about God's redemptive plan and God's story from woe to go, the beginning to end in the Bible, we will see that sin entered into the humanity, uh, into the human race through Adam, and. Before sin entered, man, even though there was only Adam and Eve there, had a very peaceful, enjoyable, perfect relationship with God and with one another. But sin entered into the world and uh, man's relationship with God was broken, it was cut off and that soon affected relationships with fellow human beings. Things like selfishness and jealousy and violence and even murder became a typical outcome of a broken relationship with God which then flowed on to dysfunctional and difficult, tentious relationships with one another. And of course the first evidence we see of that is where um, Cain, out of sheer jealousy, Adam's son rose up and killed his brother Abel. But praise God... By his matchless grace, he has provided for us a way of having a right relationship, restoring that peaceful relationship that once was, he has provided that way for us to have it again. And this is vitally important. This is very, very important because 
You see, without a restored personal relationship with God, a person will never know true joy, true peace and hope. They'll never know that. Not as the, what the Bible describes as true joy and peace and hope. And here is something more important though because there's only one way for that to happen. I think everyone out there is just like we're social beings and love hanging out with one another. Everyone underneath wants joy and wants peace and wants hope, right? Whatever way that may be described. They may just want peace with fellow man or whatever but uh, it, it, it comes unstuck all the time. And, uh, but as we know, there's only one true way of knowing this, true joy, peace and hope. And um, there, there are not many roads that lead to the mountaintop like many would tell us. There's only one road. And you may think this is dogmatic, but I'm only telling you what the Bible says because Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man or no person comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus is dogmatic. Absolutely, that's, that's one way. And so to be made right with God, to know the forgiveness of sin, uh, to have a, a salvation that is eternal, a salvation in the here and now that brings joy and peace and hope is to have a right relationship with God. That's where it begins. That's where it begins. It begins no, no place else. And it only comes by one way. It comes by God's grace. That's God giving to us what we don't deserve through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. Okay, So there we have God's uh, sovereignty and grace in the matter and we have man's responsibility of trusting in Christ. And so as believers who have exercised faith in Jesus, we now have the responsibility of working on having a right relationship with one another. And sad to say, may I say, some Christians have real difficulty in this. I really struggle on this. You know, some people rub us the wrong way, don't they? They rub the fur on our back the wrong way and it sort of makes us buck and kick. And that happens in the Christian camp. Well, join the club. This is not going to happen. But we need to develop. Because we have a right relationship with God, we need to work on developing the power of the Holy Spirit under the instruction of the Word of God, developing peaceful and joyful relationships with one another. And so Paul has been on about this, by the way, since chapter 12. It's not the first time he's brought this up here. Um, He he launched out, remember, in chapter 12 as we're going through the book of Romans, uh, pleading with believers, first of all, to have a right working relationship, I call it, a right working relationship with the Lord. And he described that as you must be living sacrifices. In other words, your lives must be placed on the altar to the Lord. You'll be totally committed to the Lord. And so whether you're working in the hospital, whether you're working at home, whether you're working in the field, whatever, whether you're at playing or sleeping, your life is the Lord's. There must be total commitment. So he, he, he launches from having a right relationship with God as believers and then he goes out and he says, and that relationship with the Lord will have an effect of how you relate to one another. And he says, for instance, you're not to love hypocritically. Your love for one another in the local church is to be authentic. It's to be real. You're never to take revenge. If someone does something wrong to you, you're not to pay them back. 
even like being indifferent toward them, ignoring them. No, you are to go the extra mile. You are to come overcome evil with good, he says. And he even takes a bit further outside the church and he says you are to love your enemies. How's that for relational development? Okay, this is, this is the ideal that Paul speaks all the way through here, not saying that we will ever reach that 100%, but this is the goal that Paul puts to us that he strove for, he strove for, and he struggled with, but it was ever before him, and it's the goal that's ever, we're before ourselves. And so then in chapter, that was in chapter 12, and then in chapter 13, it was about having a right relationship with governing authorities. Remember? We're to submit to those who are in government to our authorities, to our judges, to our whoever, our prime ministers, our members of the state parliament, etc. We're to submit to them, whether they be good or whether they be bad, because who are they? The scriptures tell us they are ministers of God put there by him. So we're to submit to them. And so that was a bit tough to handle, but we have to submit to the word of God. And then we come to chapter 14, and Paul moves on here, and he said... He talks about strong believers and weak believers, you know, those who understand their liberties in Christ and those who are really struggling with lots of legalistic practices that are baggage from former religious beliefs. And particularly in the context of Scripture, he would have had Jews in mind who were keeping this, the holy days and, and the, new, the, the feasts and the new moons and uh, all that sort of thing. They were keeping special. And of course, when they became Christians, that didn't all of a sudden just drop off. They sort of hung on to them and thought, well, to be a good Christian, I still have to do this and this and this and this and not do that and that and that and that. Now, when we bring that into our everyday situation and, and jump the bridge of time, we still have believers like that today. In other words, to be a Christian, you've got to do this and this and this and not do that and that and that. In other words, it's salvation by grace plus works. And that's not the gospel. We're saved by grace through faith. Okay? And so, so far it has been very much about what we must do and, um, and what we must do do for one another in the body of Christ. But now we see, that was in, um, that was in chapter 15 actually, 15 he expands on, on strong believers, the strong believers, uh, they are to deny their liberties. That's what we had sort of last week. Those who understand their liberties in Christ, they are called when necessary to deny their liberties and to n- never involve themselves in them for the sake of the weaker believer. So this whole passage from chapter 12 on is about developing right relationships, first with the Lord, even as Christians, and then with one another. But when we come to this passage, as we have seen, it's all about what we must do, what we must not do kind of thing, but now we see it's more about what we need to be for each other. Okay? what we need to be for each other. And so this section from verses 7 to 13 that we have read, it majors on being a rejoicing Christian. Okay? You ever heard of one of those? A rejoicing Christian. Not just for the hour on Sunday morning. A Christian who rejoices in the Lord. And I believe not necessarily just an inner rejoicing, although that is vital and absolutely necessary, but a a rejoicing that emanates and can be seen and is evidenced in our lives. This is what he he deals with here. And so this is what he talks with in this section and he, he brings us together, as we see here, the Lord does, he brings us together from different backgrounds, right? Even in this small room here, small group of people, 
he, he, he has brought us together from different backgrounds, different cultures, and even out of some false religious systems. And what he's done, he's forged together both strong and weak and, and, he, and he's made us one eternal body in Christ. How awesome is that? Okay? How awesome is that? To have that commonality, to have that oneness where we can fellowship and rejoice together. Um, uh, yeah, that, the world's hanging out for something like that. It is. It really is. It's hanging out for it. It will do one day because we know that there's one guy going to jump up in the world and he's going to say, hey, this is what we'll do. And, 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 the, and the whole world, the, the, the unsaved world, we're going to, oh, wow, this is going to bring unity. This is going to bring togetherness. This is going to be better for everyone. And so they're going to flock to this man of sin as we read of. But we have it now, right? Because we're drawn by one man, Jesus Christ. And so um, he's brought us together from all these different backgrounds and uh, this is an awesome relational truth that we really need to get our heads and hearts around a whole lot more than we really do. I honestly believe that. And, um, and so the apostle leaves the do's and don'ts of developing right relationships and he now majors on the unified joy of celebration of our togetherness. And so this is what Paul he calls us to embrace it. He calls us to embrace it. His final call in this whole theological section of Romans, the end of the book of Romans, is to say, he calls us to rejoice together in what God has done to make us one body, one family for his glory. And so that will bring us to our first point. I've sort of divided up being a good homiletician. I've divided up in three points again. Sometimes I digress. But firstly, we see in this section that there must be mutual acceptance of one another. We see this in verse 7, okay? And I, I see you smiles. You know, I have fun picking up those pictures. Yeah, and Anisha's sort of laughing there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm trying to capture the... Well, even here we have the Indian flavour and we have the Kiwi flavour, we have the Australian, we have all these, these different ethnic groups. And, and I believe me, I have some visitors here today. Filipino, would I be correct? Look at that. I'm pretty good on picking faces, aren't I? And, um, and so we have all these... We have, even in this room, different people and mutually bound together by one common bond in Jesus Christ. And so we've dealt with this issue actually uh, over the last few weeks. But what Paul does here is he summarises what God expects us to do and to be in all our diversity and that is to accept one another. Accept one another. And, um, and, the, and the answer, we say, well, why should we? Well, the answer is simple because Christ has accepted us, right? It's a no-brainer, absolutely. And so because Christ has accepted us from all walks of life and introduced us to the glory of God, because that's what he's done, we should also be unified by God's word and his spirit and bring him worship and praise to his glory. That's the deal. That's the deal. Think about that, though. Think about that. God in Christ has introduced us to his glory. Now, sometimes we don't think about God's glory like this. But he has. He's introduced us to his glory. So you just be patient with me and we'll just track through this and, and you'll see where I'm getting at. Yeah, he's, he's placed us in the presence of God. For those who truly know Jesus Christ as Saviour, we have been placed positionally in the presence of God. Ephesians 1.3 tells us that. He said, he, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In other words, as far as God is concerned, every born-again believer is right now smack in the presence of God. Never to be removed. 
Positionally, we are eternally in the presence of God. We are one in Christ. And as I've often said before, and I'll speak reverently, if God could look to his right hand and he sees Jesus Christ, he sees every single born-again believer in this room and in the whole world as one in him. Perfect. That's an awesome truth, right? You can't get much more unified than that. And so that's what God has done. And so if he's done that for us, surely we can accept one another. And so... He's locked us into God's eternal, glorious presence. It's a done deal. Why? So that we might praise His glorious grace. That's Ephesians 1, 6, 4, 1, 6 tells us, that we might praise His glorious grace. You see, God's presence, God's presence is all about something. It's all about His manifested glory. So we may not think about His glory like this, as I said before, but, but you see, when He disclosed Himself, when God disclosed himself, when he made himself known in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, by faith we received God's glory so that we might, in unity, glorify him. You see, when we speak about God's glory, it's always speaking, it's always speaking of his presence. You speak of God's presence, it's always about his glory. You cannot separate the two. God is glorious. Jesus Christ is, is a man of glory. Because he is God. Okay? And so we've been introduced to this glory and we've accepted into Jesus Christ's glory, into the glory of God. And, you know, really, when this is what Jesus prayed. Remember Jesus prayed in John 17 before he was crucified? He said this in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, he's praying to his Father in heaven, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they might be one even as we are one. You see that? My dear people, when we accept our fellow brothers and sisters with authentic love and compassion and with one accord, as we had last week, despite our weaknesses and our faults, we all have them, I know, because I've got a heap, and I probably rub some people up the wrong way often, despite all that, we can worship God in unity. And when we do, we manifest, when we accept one another, we manifest something of God's glory in this church. We display the presence of the glory of God. What an awesome responsibility and what a wonderful privilege to be involved in. That's the call that's being made here in this, in this verse. You see, if the perfect sin, the Son of God, has accepted us into the divine family, we also should accept one another. Despite the fact that some of us still cling to the weaknesses of the flesh, which may, as I said, rub one another up the wrong way, despite all that, accepting one another as Christ has accepted us, not only glorifies God, but also displays something of God's glory, God's presence with us. Now, if we can display more of God's presence with us, that's going to have a profound effect, not only on our families, but those whom we work with. Those whom we rub shoulders with, those whom we meet. And what a great thing to do. Secondly, we see that we have mutual reasons to rejoice with and glorify God. This is from verses 8 to 12, okay? We have mutual reasons. Now, Paul's emphasis in this text here shifts somewhat. It shifts. It shifts from strong and weak believers and, and sort of focusing in on. on believers within the local church. And what he does here is he includes unity amongst Jew and Gentile. 
because this is what the issue was going down in Paul's time. And, and so what he does here is he gives mutual reasons why both believing Jews and believing Gentiles can rejoice and glorify God together. This is what he does in this section. Yes, when we think of the Jews, we hold that the Jews still are God's chosen people and God has a place for the nation of Israel in the future. But in this day of grace, we're all one. We're all sinners in needing of a saviour. The Jews are God's chosen race. They're his special people. They're his covenanted people. And the whole of scripture from Genesis 12 right to the end clearly repeats that over and over and over. God made unconditional promises, as you know, and we've been looking at going through Genesis in our home groups, God made unconditional promises of blessing to his people Israel. Conditional promises and unconditional ones. But the main one is that he promised that through them a seed would come. Okay? Galatians chapter 3.16 talks about that seed in the singular and that seed is the Messiah who would be born and who was, who be, who was to be a deliverer. A saviour was come through the people of Israel and that through him all the promises would be fulfilled. The promises are repeated over and over to Israel concerning God's blessing of this special people. Jeremiah 33, 14, for example. You're going way back into Jeremiah, into, into the Old Testament time. And he prophesied, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise. What promise is he talking about? The promise he's talking about are the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But that's why you see that three men mentioned all the way through the Old Testament. As I spoke to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. As I said to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, etc. And so this is the promise. He said, behold, the days are coming. This is Jeremiah living hundreds and hundreds of years later and way before, hundreds and hundreds of years before when Christ came. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will fill it, fulfill it. If we take a quantum leap into the New Testament period, the Apostle Paul preaches to the Jews at Antioch, a Jewish audience, right? And he says this in Acts chapter 3, verse 23. He gives them a lesson on good old King David's pedigree because King David, you know, he was the hero to Jews, a bit like Moses and Abraham and every, every good and even not so good Jew knew about King David. And so Paul gives them a lesson on his pedigree and he says, of this man's offspring, in other words, of King David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. How awesome is that? And he reiterates the same truth further on in this very book that we've been, we've been going through in chapter 9, verse 4. He says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Now this is clearly what Paul is speaking of here in verse 8. Jesus became a servant to Israel in order to confirm that God's promises to their forefathers were still right on track. Jesus Christ is a promised Messiah and God's redemptive program for his covenant of people and for the world has not been forgotten or bypassed. Once again, what an awesome truth that is and a confirmation for Jewish believers to know so that they might glorify God in worship, right? In other words, they're wow, 
God hasn't debunked his plan that he made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Everything's still right on track. And by believing in Messiah and Jesus, it's all part of his redemptive plan. And so we can rejoice together because God is still true to his word, true to his promises. But note in all this, there is a huge spin-off. A huge spin-off in all this to Gentiles. And I'll be picking that all of us are Gentiles. I don't know if any who are uh, Jewish converts here in our congregation. There may be, but I doubt it. And, uh, and there's a huge spin-off to Gentiles. You see, God has never and never did leave out the Gentiles that are non-Jews. He's never left them out in the cold in regards to his redemptive plan. Never. He's a missionary God. He's always gone out to seek the lost. And when you think about Israel and the Gentiles, we were really lost. We were lost, lost. Because God in his sovereignty, he chose Abraham. No particular purpose. He wasn't better than anyone else. Israel, a nation, certainly wasn't better than anyone else. Matter of fact, there are worse than a whole lot of pagan nations if you read the Old Testament history. But God who is sovereign, he chose Israel. And we were outside the covenants of Israel. All Gentile nations were outside the covenants of Israel. So I'll say, yeah, we were lost, lost. And so Paul makes this plain in Romans chapter 10, what we've looked at in verse 12 to 13, where he says this, for there is no distinction. See, God has never left us out. Paul said, therefore there is no distinction between Jew and the Greek, that's a Gentile, for the, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. And then he continues on and he quotes from the prophet Joel, Paul does. He says, for whoever, that means inclusive of everyone, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Though we Gentiles are outside the covenants given to Israel, God shows abundant mercy to us, folks, abundant mercy to us and will call us his people who were not his people along with Jewish believers. God has always intended to bring Jew and Gentile into his kingdom, always. God's mercy has always been abundantly planned for us Gentiles to receive. That's why Paul quotes all these Old Testament passages here. And I'm not going to extrapolate on them word by word, but he quotes a bunch of, of Old Testament quotations, one from Psalms and Deuteronomy and Isaiah. What he's doing, he's illustrating that from all of Scripture, from all of God's story to man, God is merciful toward us who are outside the covenants of Israel. That's what he's illustrating. All believing Gentiles who once had no hope have received mercy. Paul reminds the Ephesian Gentile believers of that, doesn't he? In his letter to them in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, where he says this, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded. He's describing their state before they were saved here. Remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But praise God, we have received mercy, right? The Jewish believer has every reason to rejoice and worship God because in Jesus the ancient promises are confirmed. And because of that, because of that, the Jewish believer must accept his Gentile brother and sister and have no grudge against them whatsoever because it was always God's plan to bring them into salvation, blessing along with Gentiles for God's glory. But also as Gentile believers... 
Um, but as also as Gentile believers, we have every reason to rejoice in God as well. Why? Because God in Jesus Christ has shown us great mercy. He's shown us great mercy. And because of that, because of that, we Gentile believers must accept Jewish believers and, and have no grudge against them because it was through the Jews, it was through the Jews that God brought salvation to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. My dear people, no matter what ethnic background, no matter what socioeconomic background, no matter what cultural background or religious system we were in before we were saved, God being rich in mercy toward us has rescued us. Amen? And brought us together. What a great truth to rejoice in this morning. I trust that all of us who are, who are saved and know Jesus Christ personally through faith can rejoice together because of his mercy. Even if this week you go out, if you don't know anything about the sermon, just think about the mercy that God has shown you in bringing you to Christ. Finally, there is also divine mutual benefits that give us true joy, peace and hope whereby we can rejoice together and glorify God. Okay, we see this in verse 13. Now, you will note that Paul moves right away from the strong and the weak and, uh, and the Jew and the Gentile and, and he puts us all together here in this last verse, verse 13. It's a bit like heaven, you know. Not going to be any ethnic barriers or racial barriers or, or, or whatever. He puts us all together here. And, um, and, and although this is Paul's, can we say, a benedictory prayer for an ideal outcome in the here and now of the local church, what we see here is a beautiful symmetry in these words that also confront us individually. I love being confronted by the Word of God, okay? Because uh, it makes me say, I'm going to obey it or disobey it. It makes me say, am I going to submit to it or not to submit to it? And so I believe these words do that. Because how true it is, folks, the ideal of Paul's prayer, the ideal here, you know, it, it, it's way up here. Uh, I, I, I doubt whether we'll ever reach this perfectly, the standard that he sets here and what he prays for. But uh, we, we need to be reaching for it, right? We need to be reaching for it in the power of the Spirit of God. We need to be disciplining ourselves to reach it there. And so, the, but the problem is the ideal of Paul's, Paul's prayer is, is often glossed over and considered too idealistic for any local church. And what happens because of this situation or the reality of our own hearts that they are not as warm towards the Lord and warm towards one another as they should be, because of that reality, we brush it off and then soon become comfortable with it and say, this is the norm. And we even say, well, this is the normal church. What Paul prays for here, folks, in verse 13, that's the normal Christian church. Okay? And until we are there, we don't give up. We don't become comfortable with the status quo of where we are spiritually as individuals or with a group. We need to work harder, we need to strive harder and we need to go back in these last couple of chapters and practice all those do's and don'ts so that we will endeavour to reach there. Now, I'm not a perfectionist. I don't believe in... Christian perfection, that we'll ever reach perfection this side of heaven. 
while we still have this unredeemed flesh and the propensity to sin, uh, we'll never reach there. But be like Paul. He was like the boxer, right? He, he continued on. He was like the marathon runner. He, he strove for the race to, to reach the goal. He pressed forward. This is what we must do and this is the goal. Never let us be comfortable with where we're at spiritually and as a church. But that's how it can be. That's how it can be and so sad. As I said before, after all, I know in times in my life where there's been precious little joy because that's what verse 13 is about. Let's read it again. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and, and peace. Joy and peace. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Spirit of God. I know in my life there are times when there's been precious little joy where, there's, where life has really sucked. There's no peace about what God was doing, what others were doing, what I was doing, what the church was doing. I know times in my life where it have been like that. And it can be super, super depressing. And you go down, down, down. The real problem is all this, is when we get used to that and become content and settled with Christian life, not being what God intended for us to be in the here and now. That's a terrible plight to be in. So this is not an ideal situation for every, any believer to be in. Because why? Not only negatively affects ourselves and our spiritual well-being and our, and our joy and peace and living and life and, and our relationship with others, but it also affects the unity of the whole church. If you don't think that's right, or that may be a little bit off beam, you just imagine, use your sanctified imagination here, you just imagine how more glorifying to God would our church be if every single believer here was filled with divine joy and peace and abounding in God's hope. Oh wow, what an awesome thing that would be. I'll tell you what, we'd be getting out of this building and need to be building a bigger one. It would not only affect our church, but the, because what? We'll be introducing people to, God, people to God's glory because wow, they'll say, God is with these people. See what this is all about? God is with these people. And so we'll be introducing people here, left, right and centre, to the glory of God. We'd be a people that we would, we would be so believing, so believing in Jesus Christ that our joy in Him, our peace in Him, being so governed, being so governed by our hope in Him that God's glory and presence would be truly manifested in this church and beyond. It would. But note Paul's prayer. Note what Paul's prayer is. It's for the God of hope. You see that? The God of hope? He prays that the God of hope to graciously fill his people with divine joy and peace. What? For what? So that they might abound in hope. You see that? They might abound in hope. It's, like a, it's like a, almost like a circular motion here. The God of hope, he fills us with joy and peace so that we might abound in hope. Now this confronts us with a question. It really does. Are we being filled with God-given joy and peace? Are we being filled with a God-given joy of peace which results in a thriving hope which is energised by the Spirit of God? Now, I'm not talking about a joy when you get a present or the joy when you do some retail shopping therapy or whatever and you're so happy about whatever. You know, that kind of joy. Even when you fall in love, 
There can be joy. But you know, that kind of joy is, can often be here today and gone tomorrow. It's only temporary. We're not talking about a joy that is all about external stuff where we're excited or whatever. We're talking about a joy that God gives. That despite all the circumstances, despite all the heavy trials that we're, we, we come under, there can still be an inner joy. There can still be inner peace. I had the privilege in the last few years of being beside dying people in their last stages of life who have loved the Lord. And their dying stages have just caused them to rejoice and just to be so thankful about God's mercy in saving them. And these people, right to their dying breath, are so thankful and are rejoicing in the Lord. Despite their cancerous bodies, despite the difficulties they're going through, they can still rejoice in the Lord. And I said, often say, I want to be like that person. I want to have more of what that person's got that I lack. Joy in the Lord. The question is, are we being filled with God-given joy and peace? All mankind generally, as we said earlier on, seeks joy and peace through a hope that they might have in something or someone, right? The world's hope is basically, it might be for a politically stable world or it might be for a financially stable world or for their own bank balance to be built up so that they can retire happily and and then die off at a good old age. That might be their hope. How temporary is that, folks? Here today and gone tomorrow kind of stuff. I want more than that. I'm greedy. You can call me that. Yeah. But God offers it to us through Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we can be sucked into the cultural trend of seeking the, the joy and the peace that the world offers. We can be sucked into that. But God wants something more for us. You see, hope is the motivator. Joy and peace are the desired outcomes. Have a think about that. A person who hasn't got any hope will either end up mentally challenged or in an asylum somewhere. Or they'll commit suicide. A person with no hope, and you might think, oh, well, I have no hope in anything. Oh, yes, you do. You just haven't taken off the layers yet and discovered what it is. You may hope in yourself, you may hope for the system, you may hope for whatever or, or whatever. You see, so hope is the motivator and joy and peace are the desired outcomes. In other words, the quality, the quality of our joy and peace will determine where our hope lies. And the quality of our hope will determine the measure of our joy and peace. If our hope is in health, wealth and prosperity, and some Christians it is still, sad to say, it will not give us true lasting joy or lasting peace because sooner or later it's going to crash and burn. If our hope is founded on anything else other than the Lord and total commitment to Him, whereby we are living sacrifices, if it's anything other than that, Our hope is earthbound and will only produce a disturbed peace and a counterfeit temporary joy at the very best in every situation. There are many believers who are are robbing themselves of true joy and peace because what? Because they renege on fully trusting God for the everyday circumstances. You notice that there? 
What does Paul say in here in verse 13? Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. What's the avenue? What's the channel? You see the next two words? In believing. You see that? It's not as if we just zap with joy and peace and then we just go on a merrily way. No, no, no. There's a responsibility. Just like when we came to Christ, God offered His Son as a sacrifice for our sin and, and, um, and, and He calls us and we know all the truth, the eternal truth of, of, of election and predestination, except like that, but there's still a human responsibility to put our faith and trust in God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's exactly the same as the believer the same faith that you put in Jesus Christ when you came to know the Lord, it must be a developing faith, a developing belief and that's where you will find joy and peace. Because why? Believing and your hope is in God. That's what it is. Hebrews 9, 6 and 19 speaks of Jesus Christ being the, the only anchor of true hope. You know, if your anchor's in Jesus Christ, that's the only place to start. Hebrews 6 and 19 says, The hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. That's where it must start, folks. And if it's not standing there, you're on the wrong footing. You know, the old hymn writer, I believe that he was writing a hymn based on this truth. He got it exactly right. And he said, We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Saviour's love. Where does your hope lie, folks? I hope, and my prayer is that your hope is clinging to the Saviour. Have you started the spiritual journey? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not saved. You need to start that spiritual journey. God calls you to believe in Him, trust in Him, in Jesus Christ. Because who is God? He's the God of hope, right? He's the God of hope. And because we have, if we've started that journey and we have our hope given to us from God, it's our motivation for living and doing and being and, and, and it will overflow so that we know peace and joy in Jesus Christ. May our hope in God give us every reason this morning and from here on to rejoice together in God's redemptive plan. Thank you, Pete.